everybody to the uh, fourth and final talk in this series on contemplation of death and dying. <coughs> I was asked uh, once um, not too long ago what it was very confusing to this person who was uh, asking. He, they didn't really understand uh, what the meditation, the formal meditation practice, and and then uh, working with uh, death and dying uh, during the week, really how those two folded together. And um, the person who was posing the question question was uh, particularly sincere. So I wanted to um, again sort of bring this all together and uh, in a way that makes sense to us, hopefully. Uh, I think it's important to understand that the formal meditation is is not an end in itself. It's a method or a way for us to establish some clarity of mind so that we can begin to see through the colorations that we normally have towards things or onto things and therefore see things as clearly as possible. That is, it begins to orient ourselves towards reality as it actually is. And that's what we do when we sit in formal meditation is we begin to cultivate those uh, a variety of, of different qualities of mind like uh, one-pointedness, like um, equanimity and balance, uh, clarity. Uh, there are a number of others, tranquility and calmness, which allows us to pierce the normal ways we perceive events and to really go to the essence of what things are. Now, uh, when we work with reflections and exercises on death and dying in the course of the week, what we're doing is using uh, our everyday experience to begin to pierce the ways that we deny and not want to look at the world, the way we avoid the world. So we use uh, death and dying to reorient ourselves to the fact of the way life is which is in fact containing birth and death and so it it's again another system another tool we have for beginning to look at life the way it is the way it is in, in actuality and so we use these exercises and reflections again to to um, uh, to hold ourselves in the direction of what is true about life. To keep ourselves focused on the truth rather than what we pretend life to be. So that's hopefully how these... And the sitting meditation is another tool or another method in that direction. It's not... When you say that you meditate, I hope you don't mean just sitting on the cushion or just doing formal walking. It's really an orientation or a perception or a way or an attitude that we have about all of life itself that is meditation. So that's an important connecting, a connection, I think, between what we do here the first 45 minutes and then what we do the rest of the week to, together in these exercises. And if there are any questions about that, please ask them. Uh, when we get through with the talk here uh, because I really want this to be uh, as clear as possible to everybody.
So saying that, uh, let's go into, uh, again, hammering this point home. So I feel like, uh, you know, when you're young and, uh, and you sleep very lightly, uh, whatever happens in the, your bedroom wakes you up immediately. But when we get old and uh, it's a, oftentimes a little more hard, it's a little harder to wake people up. And uh, I, I have a feeling <laughs> these four weeks together we're trying to wake up our old frames, our old minds, shake us a little bit and say, okay, here we are. Here we are. Uh, it's one of the reasons uh, that I chose hospice work as a profession is that it's very difficult to maintain a denial of death, although it's possible to maintain a denial of death every single day when you walk by our hospice boards that have all the names and logistics of people who are under your service, including usually somebody who is a white male, 50 years old, single, or whatever our particular demographics are. And uh, so every day we're sort of passing by our own uh, mortality if we wake up to that fact. And it's a little hard to keep that psychological distance between them and us when day after day you see your name essentially written on the board. So, but it's, but it's possible. And as a matter of fact, most hospice workers achieve a certain uh, balance with their willingness to expose themselves to death and their denial of death. At some point they, get, they come to a resting point where they, many people just don't push themselves any further on the subject. And they sort of maintain a kind of static status quo in relationship to the subject. And uh, that's been obvious time and time again. It was obvious in myself one time when I um, had been in hospice work a number of years and, and then did a, um, a hemocult test on my stool and found that there was blood in it. And I immediately panicked. This is one of these home things that you do. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, you know, I have colon cancer. And I, um, of course, made a, an appointment to the doctor immediately. And as I remember thinking, all the people I wanted to take care of me in hospice care on my way to the doctor's visit. Because I could hear the doctor say it was metastasized and it's too late. <laughs> all the things I feared the most. And when I got to the doctor, he said, you, I had hemorrhoids. <laughs> but it certainly woke me to the fact of how little I had little distance I had really come in my journey towards acceptance of death and dying and that uh, in fact uh, that, that we can only approach it so closely when we are healthy when we are vibrant uh, our minds can only take it in. Or for most of us, our minds can only take in a part of that. We work with it a lot, but I think it's a very different realization 
uh, to work with the dying and to be dying. And I've done uh, workshops with Gavin Harrison, who has AIDS. He's a very good friend of mine, has AIDS, and sits there and talks about what it's like uh, to actually go through these uh, opportunistic uh, infections and have 105 temperature and never know whether you're going to get out of the hospital. And that's a very different uh, presentation than mine that talks about what it's like to work with the dying. I'm always, he always wakes me up to how distant I am from the subject. And so I, I want us to understand that even with all these exercises and reflections, we're only going to get so close. But to entertain the subject, to open ourselves to the subject is at least the beginning of that, of the ending of our denial. It's the beginning of the ending of our denial. And the, also the willingness to work up, work on uh, that attitude which I mentioned in the beginning of this talk, the attitude of addressing things the way they are. That is a posture in life. That is, an, that is a stance that I take in life. That I'm willing to look at life the way it is. I'm willing to f hear feedback. I'm willing to look at my dishonesty. I'm willing to see where my integrity is less than what I hoped it would be. I'm willing to look at those things in myself. And that is because I feel much of that is because I've been willing to look at death. So even though we can only get so close to death, it doesn't mean that it only serves us in that attitude and posture a little bit. It serves us completely in just our willingness to allow things in. So I will continue pounding and if everybody would please um, take one of the uh, of the um, homework assignments Again, there is a uh, saying by Ajahn Sumedho about letting go and then an exercise on letting go that uh, should uh, fill your weeks until we meet again. It is an ongoing and lifelong process of learning how to let go. And I encourage all of us to see how this is related to death and I hope we'll tie this up, tie this into the talk tonight. So if we start marching again down the uh, Maranasati Sutra, which again is the mindfulness of death sutta uh, that the Buddha spoke about, we had um, gone through the third and we're heading into the uncertainty of the time of death. But we had, uh, we just talked a little bit about the amount of time spent in our life to develop the mind is very small. And uh, I mentioned that uh, last week because of the, um, of the enormous effort it takes for us to uh, develop a practice in our daily life and even more to take the resolve to do it every single day. Compared to all the number of hours that we are uh, essentially absent-minded and uh, that uh, those hours of absent-mindedness are really a um, 
are, are become critical when we see that uh, death is imminent, when our death is is uh, imminent at some time. Then we begin to put much more weight on what we want to use our life for rather than how we want to avoid our living experience, which is the absent-mindedness. Uh, and as I've mentioned before, um, uh, turning 50 had that effect on me. It was a sobering effect. It was like, okay, how do you want to use the rest of the time remaining? Life isn't endless now. It's not forever. And uh, you need to come, to come to terms with that. And uh, death will come regardless of whether or not we have taken the time to practice the meditation and the truth. As one Rinpoche said, I spent 20 years not wanting to practice the Dharma. I spent the next 20 years thinking that I could practice it later on. I spent another 20 years in other activities and regretting the fact I was not practicing the Dharma then. That is the story of my empty life, he says. So just to become aware of how much time we spend in pursuits which take us really nowhere, like uh, worrying or avo avoiding ourselves, avoiding the patterns that we've lived lo our life. Any avoidance, you see, is avoidance of death. Because what I'm saying when I avoid something is that I, I'll get to it at another time. I'll get to it later on. It's procrastination. It's, and therefore, you're not taking into account the fact that death could happen at any moment. Or you wouldn't procrastinate. You wouldn't delay. So when we avoid something, we're really avoiding our death. And to, be, to become aware of that. To begin to, to get a sense of how that happens. The fact is that we have a limited amount of time on this earth. We will never read all the great works. It's at the age of uh, 40, I realized I was never going to be a Major League Baseball player. <laughs> it was a childhood dream, you know, when you're a kid. You think you always have that. I never had much potential in that area, but <laughs> nevertheless, you wake up one day and you're too old to ever be drafted. <laughs> But then another realization occurs to me from time to time about all the great books of the works of art that you'll never see or the great works of literature that you'll never read. Um, so many, so little time really in this life, isn't there? I mean, it really, it doesn't affect it. I have a 10, two, 10, 12 year old nieces. They just, they have no concept of time when you're that age. Not, not in terms of, of life being finite. Uh, and they just, I mean, there's a certain um, naiveness uh, and gaiety to just moving through life like it's endless. 
but it dawns on us very quickly as decades roll by, and they roll by seemingly with increasing frequency, that this is it. This is it. How are we going to use it? How are we going to use our time? What is important to us? And can we allow or alter our daily routine to begin to open to what's important to us? And how unprepared we are to face our end. Most of us are very unprepared. Very unprepared. I now if we move into the next, the uncertainty of the time of death. Uh, I, uh, in, as a monk in, in Thailand, I would time to time go to the autopsies there because my mind was very clear and very uh, steady uh, from months, years of practice. I would go to the autopsies, and many of these. Um, Many of these bodies had just recently died in automobile accidents and they were just on tables with doctors doing autopsies. But the interesting thing, what I could feel is the uh, consciousness that was still very close to those bodies, to the, to the um, cadavers. And little children, I remember a little child. And just what confusion that consciousness may have as it tries to enter or re-enter that body and be unable to do so and not understand that it's dead, that the body has ended. And how unprepared probably most of those people were when that body breathed this last breath. Is that any different than most of us though? How many patients that uh, our staff talks about who uh, live their life in preparation for their retirement only to discover the malignancy uh, in that first year of retirement and all of the plans of what they were going to do with their lives thereafter uh, were on hold. How many of you, when you see a roadkill, when you go by a raccoon or a possum or something on the road, reflect about the uncertainty of time of death for us? It's extremely precarious. And that's one of the reasons we do this, is to arouse an uncertainty about our time of death. To root up the how apathetic we can become, how unaroused, how unpassionate we can become about what life is, is about. To uproot that. To keep us on our edge, not the edge of fear, but the edge of of participation and a wakefulness. (coughs) 
And then the next uh, category, there are many causes of death. From a slightly different angle, see each one of these approach uh, mindfulness of death from a slightly different perspective. This again asks us to look how we currently are alive, how we currently live. The list of things which take our life are uh, endless. Internal and external. You turn to the news and there's famine and drought, fire, disease, heart attack, AIDS, cancer. Thousands and thousands of causes. I read somewhere where uh, the external world as we see it, the forms of the world that we see it, if you put all the bacteria on a scale and put all the forms of the world that we see, you know, metal and wood and all of the, on the other, the weight of the bacteria would more than double the weight of all of this. And each one of those bacteria contain a potential threat or can cause disease. We think we have one thing conquered and something else pops up. And to, to live is to be subject to thousands of different causes for our death. Nargajuna, a Buddhist philosopher, said, We maintain our life in the midst of thousands of conditions that threaten death. Our life force abides like a candle flame in the breeze. The candle flame of our life is easily extinguished by the winds of death that blow from all directions. And just to, to feel that, feel that. Everywhere we turn, there's the threat of violence or disease or something, earthquake. Just to wake us up, to orient ourselves to the way life is. Then the next, uh, the human body is so fragile, the fragility of the human body. I mean, it's really amazing. I. Last year, I, uh, I just ran. I was um, jogging like I do every day and have done for years and years. And I came back and uh, went, went to bed that night and couldn't, uh, couldn't tie my shoes, couldn't bend forward the next day. And for the last year, it's still stiff, hurts. But for months, I couldn't do anything. Almost uh, immobile. how fragile the human body is. It's just so... Look at the nursing home patients. A small microbe or a blow to a vulnerable part of the body and uh, we are 
forever harmed. And to be able to see that fragility in our breath, just as we breathe, just as we pull in the breath and inhale and exhale, how dependent we are on that lifeline of breath that is so tentative. And our heartbeat. I mean, just for a moment, just feel your heart. Who knows when that will stop beating? So then the sutta looks at a different facet that only the practice of dharma can help us at the time of death. Our possessions cannot. And this begins to align us to what the purpose and central focus of our lives might be given all these other fragility and uh, conditions of of our um, finiteness. So what do we want to use life about? What do we want to use it for? Gurdjieff said, um, when you die, you must leave everything behind except one thing if you practice it. There's one thing that you can take with you. The Buddha alluded to that as well when he talked about a lifetime of good deeds doesn't compare to a single instant of insight because he understood that insight was what etched itself within our consciousness and could be taken from this life into whatever forms the consciousness next takes. That's very important understanding to have that the practice, the things that we perceive now, the way that we look now, carry over from death. And I I imagine most of you have had that, uh, an intimation of that uh, through your own practice. I certainly did when I first started I felt like I had done this for and there was an old something I was coming back to. It felt so uh, normal or so usual, so familiar to me. And um, and I remember that it, I was uh, I, o- I always felt like I, I uh, should understand more than what I was understanding at the time. And I had a teacher once um, explain to me that um, the reason I felt so irritated about my limited understanding was that I never, that I hadn't achieved what the level of understanding that I had in a previous lifetime. And that it wasn't until you come to that level of understanding again that the body and mind relax because the insight hasn't been attuned to. You know there's something out there that you aren't attuning yourself towards and it pushes you and forces you to stick with it until you begin to understand, regain that understanding. Mm -hmm. 
So the practice of Dharma, what we are doing here, so simple, such a beautiful practice in the simplicity, in its joy, in its directness, and its integrity, in its relationship, and its uh, emphasis on affection. I mean, what is, what is it all about except those things? It's like the uh, patient I worked with when I was a social worker in a hospice program. Uh, again, some of these, I can't remember what I've said <laughs> to you, the stories I've told before, so some of you will have to live through some of these again. But uh, this particular woman was um, uh, diagnosed with terminal cancer uh, at the same time that her husband was dying of cancer. And I, I sat down with her and I said um, to her, Jane, you know, um, what is it that keeps you going? Because she was so far back in her consciousness, I couldn't, I could barely reach her. And she said, um, she said, only the love of my daughter and, uh, the, uh, and my God, my religion, is the only reason I live. And I said that though nobody would have wished this tragedy on her, most people live their entire lives and not come to that depth of understanding about the meaning of life. That what death had done to her was to show her the essence. Because what she had just said to me, that what, what life was about was love, love for her daughter, and her spiritual growth. And that she may have lived 80 years and never touched that understanding unless these tragedies had befallen her. And that usually out of these tragic situations that occur, these, when we're plummeted to the depths of our pain, we can sometimes touch or intimate a level of insight or understanding about life that will change us forever. And certainly working with death and dying can do that. I worked with a woman once who had lost, I can't remember to be honest if she'd lost three or four children, but she had lost virtually all of her kids. And when we got involved, she was also losing her husband. So she was the last remaining person in this family. Two or more of the kids had died um, young with childhood diseases and another had died in a motorcycle accident or something. And um, I remember uh, not knowing what to say to her. I mean, what do you say to somebody who has that kind of depth of grief? But as I got to know her, I asked her uh, about those losses. And she said each one had touched her in a way that had allowed her uh, to come, in her words, closer to God. And 
even though my expectations when I first met her was that this woman would be just engrossed in grief, I found her to be other than that, that really she had a very light spirit about her, that she could cry very easily from that grief, but also at the same time her eyes would twinkle in a joy that was uncommon. And I think it was the depths of the tragedies that she had faced that had allowed her to come to that sense of joy. We have to go through the fear of our misorientation to life before we can orient ourselves to the joy that was always on the other side of our fear. And as we wrap up this sutta, just a couple of more. Our loved ones cannot help us, is the next stanza. It's natural for us to turn for help to someone to help us through our death and dying. It's very interesting, though, if you think about it, you know, we come into this world alone and we leave it alone. And that one of the things we really do need to cultivate is that sense of independence and self-reliance in life. This really is a single journey. We have enormous friends that help us all along the way. I remember once I went to India and I uh, went by myself and uh, people said, oh, you'll meet people all along the way. And sure enough, when I got to India, you meet other Westerners and you just go from place to place and you leave the country and you never felt like you were alone at all. That's kind of like life. You go into it alone and then you just meet people that sort of, you get handed off uh, from your father, mother, spouse, siblings, friends. And then you leave the country alone. And that we have to have enough self-confidence to be able to do that, to be able to live alone, to be able to face death. We can't hold somebody's hand at that moment that we die. I mean, we can in body, but we leave the body. And therefore, we leave the hand behind. And that's part of the courage of facing our death, is the courage to be alone. The courage to be able to be alone without being, feeling isolated or unworthy in our aloneness. And finally, our own body can't help. No. Most of us have spent a, a, a lifetime working on our bodies. We have powdered and sprayed and cleaned and scrubbed, and then it dies. <laughs> you know, I, somebody said, when you get to be 40 or 50 and you look back at a picture of you when you were in your 20s, you see you'll never look as good as you did then. 
And my sister has a picture of myself and her when I was about 25 and she was about 22. And I said, God, I've never looked that good. <laughs> you keep waiting for it to come back. <laughs> it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. It's a fleeting life. Everything falling away. The, quite likely, the way the body feels now is as good as it will feel for the duration of your lifetime. It's all downhill. <laughs> Sorry to be so blunt. <laughs> but that's quite likely true. So where do we go from here? Let's put the sutta aside a little bit and bring in some joy. <laughs> well, we don't want to go back to living forever. We can see, hopefully now, these weeks together has shown us that that's a dead end. It's a dead end. We continue to age. We just do it with our eyes closed. And therefore we keep walking into walls. Besides just aging, the problem and pain of aging, we also have the problem of knocking our forehead against things. It hurts. So we have to open our eyes. We have to uh, be willing to admit things. And, and one of the cues that we can do is how apathetic we can become. We can use our apathy as a cue to practice our death meditation, to reinvigorate ourselves with the right attitude and posture. And you can use certain signs to bring you back to these reflections, like road kills. I, every time I see a road kill, two, death and dying, right there. You can use uh, news tragedy, listen to the six o'clock news and just reflect on death meditation while you're going through all the wars and famines. And Another way you can reorient yourself uh, from time to time is your birthday. Comes around every year. <laughs> you know, what's your grave going to say? 19... Is it going to be 97, 98, 99, 2000? What is it going to say? Your headstone. What is it? Is it this year? Is it next year? It's going to be a year. <coughs> and we can use natural expressions of change that are all around us. The Buddhist, in the Buddhist tradition, the monks, when someone dies, the ashes of the... Um, person are put in a an urn and then a string is tied from the urn passed through all of the relatives the surviving relatives and the monks and they all hold on to this string and we chant first in Pali I'll say the chant and then I'll give the translation it goes Anicca Vata Sankara Upatawa Yadamino Upakituwa Niruchanti Desam Upasumo Sukho what that means is all things 
have the nature to arise and pass away. One who lives in harmony with that truth opens their hearts to the joys of true life. Which in Pali or the English? Yes. Anicha wata sankara upatuwa yadamino upakituwa niruchanti desam upasumosuko. All things have the nature to arise and pass away. One who lives in harmony with that truth opens their heart to the joys and happinesses of life. It changes a little bit every time I. <laughs> Walk through cemeteries. Read obituaries. Talk about death with your family and friends. Make out your will. Make out your advance directives. Take it seriously. Use it as a style, as something that you bring into the picture rather than excluding it. And then, my friends, the ultimate practice of death is the reflection and exercise that I give you tonight, and that is the practice of letting go. Krishnamurti, in his wisdom, during a public appearance in a talk that I uh, was part of, he said, do you want to know what it's like to die? And there was a hush over the audience as everybody was expecting him to tell them what it was like to physically die. And he said, think of the thing you treasure the most and drop it. That's death. Our willingness to let go of our worries, our expectations, our fears. And Ajahn Sumedho has a very beautiful uh, paragraph or two that uh, is also included in your handout tonight about that practice of letting go, of just letting go, of just all the expectations you have of where the practice is going to take you or what the practice is about or where your life is headed or the meaning of it or the tragedy of it is all of that. Just letting it go. Letting it go, letting it go, letting it go. And you come to a point where you let things be so that letting go isn't what you do, but you don't ever pick anything up. You don't grasp a hold because you know to grasp a hold is eventually to deny death and to be burned by that thing. The Buddha said someone who grabs the wheel of an ox will eventually have the turn, the wheel will eventually turn to run over him. If we hold on to something long enough, it's going to die and it's going to run over us. And so the spirit and real joy of life is in the full participation of life without losing ourselves in it, without misrepresenting ourselves in it, without misrepresenting me and my. 
but living in the happiness of the rising and falling, the changing events of life as they come and they go. Practice from now on that spirit of letting go. And if you find yourself holding on, then turn to your reflections of death. Thinking about death, working with death, until it becomes so obvious that to hold on is to be burned. And so you let go again. And then you're back on that path of letting go and letting be. May we all find that place in our hearts that comes to that spirit of things passing, arising, and passing. That we are a part of that. That who we are is that arising and passing. And therefore to live in harmony with the way things are is to live with our own death and our own life moment after moment. Could we sit for a minute or two? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.